Chapter 24 At the close of three weeks, I was able to quit my chamber and move about the house. And on the first occasion of my sitting up in the evening, I asked Catherine to read to me, because my eyes were weak. We were in the library, the master having gone to bed. She consented, rather unwillingly, I fancied, and imagining my sort of books did not suit her, I bid her please herself in the choice of what she perused. She selected one of her own favourites, and got forward steadily about an hour, then came frequent questions. Ellen, are you not tired? Hadn't you better lie down now, or you'll be sick keeping up so long. No, no, dear, I'm not tired, I returned continually. Perceiving me immovable, she essayed another method of showing her disrelish for her occupation. It changed to yawning and stretching, and Ellen, I'm tired. Give over then and talk, I answered. That was worse. She fretted and sighed and looked at her watch till eight and finally went to her room, completely overdone with sleep. Judging by her peevish, heavy look and the constant rubbing she inflicted on her eyes. The following night she seemed more impatient still. And on the third, from recovering my company, she complained of a headache and left me. I thought her conduct odd and having remained alone a long while, I resolved on going and inquiring whether she were better and asking her to come and lie on the sofa instead of upstairs in the dark. No Catherine could I discover upstairs and none below. The servants affirmed they had not seen her. I listened at Mr Edgar's door, all was silence. I returned to her apartment, extinguished my candle and seated myself in the window. The moon shone bright, a sprinkling of snow covered the ground and I reflected that she might possibly have taken into her head to walk about in the garden for refreshment. I did detect a figure creeping along the inner fence of the park, but it was not my young mistress. On its emerging into the light, I recognised one of the grooms. He stood a considerable period, viewing the carriage road through the grounds, then started off at a brisk pace as if he detected something, and reappeared presently, leading Mrs Pony. There she was, just dismounted and walking by its side. The man took his charge stealthily across the grass towards the stable. Catherine entered by the casement window of the drawing room and glided noiselessly up to where I awaited her. She put the door gently to, slipped off her snowy shoes, untied her hat and was proceeding unconscious of my espionage to lay aside her mantle when I suddenly rose and revealed myself. The surprise petrified her in an instant. She uttered an inarticulate exclamation and stood fixed. My dear Catherine, I began, too vividly impressed by her recent kindness to break into a scold, where have you been riding out at this hour? And why should you try to deceive me by telling me a tale? Where have you been? Speak. To the bottom of the park, she stammered. I didn't tell a tale. And nowhere else, I demanded. No, was the muttered reply. Oh, Catherine, I cried sorrowfully. You know you have been doing wrong, or you wouldn't be driven to unuttering an untruth to me. That does grieve me. I'd rather be three months ill than hear you frame a deliberate lie. She sprang forward and bursting into tears threw her arms around my neck. Well, Ellen, I'm so afraid of you being angry, she said. 
promise not to be angry and you shall know the very truth. I hate to hide it. We sat down in the window seat. I assured her I would not scold whatever her secret might be and I guessed it, of course, so she commenced. I've been to Wuthering Heights, Ellen, and I've never missed a day going since you fell ill, except thrice before and twice after you left your room. I gave Michael books and pictures to prepare Minnie every evening and to put her back in the stable. You mustn't scold him either, mind. I was at the Heights by half past six and generally stayed till half past eight and then galloped home. It was not to amuse myself that I went. I was often wretched all the time. Now and then I was happy, once in a week perhaps. At first I expected there would be sad work persuading you to let me keep my word to Linton, for I had engaged to call again the next day when we quitted him. But as you stayed upstairs on the morrow, I escaped that trouble. While Michael was refastening the lock of the park door in the afternoon, I got possession of the key and told him how my cousin wished me to visit him because he was sick and couldn't come to the Grange and how Papa would object to my going. And then I negotiated with him about the pony. He is so fond of reading and he thinks of leaving soon to get married. So he offered if I would lend him books out of the library to do what I wished. But I preferred giving him my own and that satisfied him better. On my second visit, Linton seemed in lively spirits and Zilla, that is their housekeeper, made us a clean room and a good fire and told us that as Joseph was out at a prayer meeting and Hareton Earnshaw was off with his dogs, robbing our woods of pheasants, as I heard afterwards, we might do what we liked. She brought me some warm wine and gingerbread and appeared exceedingly good-natured and Linton sat in the armchair and I in the little rocking chair on the hearthstone and we laughed and talked so merrily and found so much to say. We planned where we would go and what we would do in summer. I needn't repeat that because you would call it silly. One time, however, we were near quarrelling. He said in the pleasantest, the pleasantest manner of spending a hot July day was lying from morning to evening on the bank of a heath in the middle of the moors with the bees humming dreamily among the bloom and the larks singing high up overhead and the blue sky and bright sun shining steadily and cloudlessly. That was his most perfect idea of heaven's happiness. Mine was rocking in a rustling green tree with the west wind blowing and bright white clouds flitting rapidly above and not only larks but throstles and blackbirds and linnets and cuckoos pouring out music on every side and the moors seen at a distance broken into cool dusky dells but close by great swells of long grass undulating in waves to the breeze and woods and sounding water and the whole world awake and wild with joy. He wanted all to lie in an ecstasy of peace. I wanted all to sparkle and dance in a glorious jubilee. I said his heaven would be only half a life and he said mine would be drunk. I said I should fall asleep in his and he said he could not breathe in mine and began to grow very snappish. At last we agreed to try both as soon as the right weather came and then we kissed each other and were friends. After sitting still an hour, I looked at the great room with its smooth, uncarpeted floor and thought how nice it would be to play in if we removed the table. And I asked Linton to call Zilla in to help us and we'd have a game, a blind man's buff. 
she should try to catch us, you know, like you used to, Ellen. He wouldn't. There was no pleasure in it, he said, but he consented to play at ball with me. We found two in a cupboard, among a heap of old toys, tops and hoops, and battle doors and shuttlecocks. One was marked C and the other H. I wished to have C because that stood for Catherine, and the H might be for Heathcliff, his name, but the bran came out of the H and Linton didn't like it. I beat him constantly, and he got cross again and coughed and returned to his chair. That night, though, he easily recovered his good humour. He was charmed with two or three pretty songs. Your songs, Ellen. And when I was obliged to go, he begged and entreated me to come the following evening. I promised. Minnie and I went flying home as light as air, and I dreamt of Wuthering Heights and my sweet darling cousin till morning. On the morrow, I was sad partly because you were poorly, and partly because I wished my father knew and approved of my excursions. But it was beautiful moonlight after tea, and as I rode on, the gloom cleared. I shall have another happy evening, I thought to myself, and what delights me more, my pretty Linton will. I trotted up their garden and was turning round to the back when that fellow Earnshaw met me, took my bridle, and bid me go in by the front entrance. He patted Minnie's neck and said she was a bonny beast and appeared as if he wanted to speak to me. I only told him to leave my horse alone or else it would kick him. He answered in his vulgar accent. It wouldn't do Mitch hurt if it did and surveyed its legs with a smile. I was half inclined to make it try, however. He moved off to the door and as he raised the latch he looked up to the inscription above and said with a stupid mixture of awkwardness and elation, Miss Catherine, I can read you on now. Wonderful, I exclaimed. Pray, let us hear you. You are grown clever. He spelt and drawled over by syllables the name Herton Earnshaw. And the figures, I cried encouragingly, perceiving that he'd come to a dead halt. I cannot tell them yet, he answered. Oh, you dunce, I said, laughing heartily at his failure. The fool stared, with a grin hovering about his lips and a scowl gathering over his eyes, as if uncertain whether he might not join in my mirth, whether it were not pleasant familiarity, or what it really was, contempt. I settled his doubts by suddenly retrieving my gravity and desiring him to walk away, for I came to see Linton, not him. He reddened. I saw that by the moonlight, dropped his hand from the latch and skulked off a picture of mortified vanity. He imagined himself to be as accomplished as Linton, I suppose, because he could spell his own name, and was marvellously discomfited that I didn't think the same. Stop, Miss Catherine, dear, I interrupted. I shall not scold you, but I don't like your conduct there. If you'd remembered that Hareton was your cousin as much as Master Heathcliff, you would have felt how improper it was to behave in that way. At least it was praiseworthy ambition for him to desire to be as accomplished as Linton, and probably he did not learn merely to show off. You had made him ashamed of his ignorance before, I have no doubt, and he wished to remedy it and please you. To sneer at his imperfect attempt was very bad breeding. Had you been brought up in his circumstance, would you be less rude? He was as quick and as intelligent a child as ever you were, and I'm hurt that he should be despised now, because that base Heathcliff has treated him so unjustly. Well, Ellen... 
you won't cry about it, will you? She exclaimed, surprised at my eagerness. But wait, and you shall hear if he can if he conned his A, B, C to please me, and if it were worth while being civil to the brute. I entered. Linton was lying on the settle and half got up to welcome me. I'm ill tonight, Catherine, my love, he said, and you must have all the talk and let me listen. Come and sit by me. I was sure you wouldn't break your word, and I'll make you promise again before you go. I knew now that I mustn't tease him as he was ill, that I spoke softly and put no questions and avoided irritating him in any way. I had brought some of my nicest books for him. He asked me to read a little of one, and I was about to comply when Earnshaw burst the door open, having gathered venom with reflection. He advanced direct to us, seized Linton by the arm and swung him off the seat. Get to thy own room, he said, in a voice almost inarticulate with passion, and his face looked swelled and furious. Take her there if she comes to see thee. Thou shalt keep me out of this. Be gone with you both. He swore at us and left Linton no time to answer, nearly throwing him into the kitchen, and he clenched his fist as I followed, seeming longing to knock me down. I was afraid for a moment, and I let one volume fall. He kicked it after me and shut us out. I heard a malignant, crackling laugh by the fire, and turning, beheld the odious Joseph standing, rubbing his bony hands and quivering. I was sure he'd starve you out, he's a grand lad. He's getting right spirit in him, he knows. Ah, he knows as well as I do, should be master in yonder. <laughs> he made you skiff properly. <laughs> Where must we go? I asked of my cousin, disregarding the old wretch's mockery. Linton was white and trembling. He was not pretty then, Ellen. Oh, no. He looked frightful, for his thin face and large eyes were wrought into an expression of frantic, powerless fury. He grasped the handle of the door and shook it. It was fastened inside. If you don't let me in, I'll kill you. If you don't let me in, I'll kill you. He rather shrieked than said, Devil, devil, I'll kill you, I'll kill you. Joseph uttered his croaking laugh again. Yeah, that's the father, he cried. That's father. We've a last summon. I'll be either side and us never heed, Hareton lad. Don't be feared. He cannot get at thee. I took hold of Linton's hands and tried to pull him away, but he shrieked so shockingly that I dared not proceed. At last his cries were choked by a dreadful fit of coughing. Blood gushed from his mouth and he fell onto the ground. I ran into the yard, sick with terror, and called for Zilla, as loud as I could. She soon heard me. She was milking the cows in a shed behind the barn, and hurrying from her work, she inquired what there was to do. I hadn't a breath to explain. Dragging her in, I looked about for Linton. Earnshaw had come out to examine the mischief he'd caused, and he was then conveying the poor thing upstairs. Zilla and I ascended after him, but he stopped me at the top of the steps and said I shouldn't go in, I must go home. I exclaimed that he had killed Linton and I would enter. Joseph locked the door and declared I should do no sit stuff and asked me whether I were bound to be as mad as him. I stood crying till the housekeeper reappeared. She affirmed he would be better in a bit, but she couldn't do with that shrieking and din and she took me and nearly carried me into the house. Ellen, I was ready to tear my hair off my head. I sobbed and wept so that my eyes were almost blind and the ruffian you have such sympathy with stood opposite 
presuming every now and then to bid me wished and denying that it was his fault and finally frightened by my assertions that I would tell Papa and that he should be put in prison and hanged, he commenced blubbering himself and hurried out to hide his cowardly agitation. Still I was not rid of him. When at length they compelled me to depart and I had got some hundred yards off the premises, he suddenly issued from the shadow of the roadside and checked Minnie and took hold of me. Miss Catherine, I'm ill-grieved, he began, but it's rather too bad. I gave him a cut with my whip, thinking perhaps he would murder me. He let go, thundering one of his horrid curses, and I galloped home more than half out of my senses. I didn't bid you good night that evening, and I didn't go to Wuthering Heights the next. I wished to go exceedingly, but I was strangely excited and dreaded to hear that Linton was dead. Sometimes, and sometimes shuddered at the thought of encountering Hareton. On the third day I took courage. At least I couldn't bear longer suspense, and stole off once more. I went at five o'clock and walked, fancying I might manage to creep into the house and up to Linton's room unobserved. However, the dogs gave notice of my approach. Zilla received me and saying the lad was mending nicely, showed me into a small, tidy, carpeted apartment, where to my inexpressible joy I beheld Linton laid on a little sofa, reading one of my books. But he would neither speak to me nor look at me through a whole hour. Ellen, he has such an unhappy temper, and what quite confounded me when he did open his mouth, it was to utter the falsehood that I had occasioned the uproar, and Hareton was not to blame. Unable to reply except passionately, I got up and walked from the room. He sent after me a faint, Catherine. He did not reckon on being answered so, but I wouldn't turn back, and the morrow was the second day on which I stayed at home nearly determined to visit him no more. But it was so miserable going to bed and getting up and never hearing anything about him that my resolution melted into air before it was properly formed. It had appeared wrong to take the journey once. Now it seemed wrong to refrain. Michael came to ask if he must saddle Minnie. I said yes and considered myself doing a duty as she bore me over the hills. I was forced to pass the front windows to get to the court. It was no use trying to conceal my presence. The young master is in the house, said Zilla, as she saw me making for the parlour. I went in. Earnshaw was there also, but he quitted the room directly. Linton sat in the great armchair, half asleep. Walking up to the fire, I began in a serious tone, partly meaning it to be true. As you don't like me, Linton, and as you think I come on purpose to hurt you and pretend that I do so every time, this is our last meeting. Let us say goodbye and tell Mr Heathcliff that you have no wish to see me and that he mustn't invent any more falsehoods on the subject. Sit down and take your hat off, Catherine, he answered. You are so much happier than I am. You ought to be better. Papa talks enough of my defects and shows enough scorn of me to make it natural I should doubt myself. I doubt whether I'm not altogether as worthless as he calls me, frequently. And then I feel so cross and bitter. I hate everybody. I am worthless and bad in temper and bad in spirit and almost always. And if you choose, you may say goodbye. You'll get rid of an annoyance. Only, Catherine, do me this justice. Believe that if I might be as sweet and as kind and as good as you are, I would be, as willingly and more so, 
than as happy and as healthy and believe that your kindness has made me love you deeper than if I deserved your love. And though I couldn't and cannot help showing my nature to you, I regret it and repent it and shall regret and repent it till I die. I felt he spoke the truth and I felt I must forgive him and though we should quarrel the next moment, I must forgive him again. We were reconciled, but we cried, both of us, the whole time I stayed. Not entirely for sorrow, yet I was sorry Linton had that distorted nature. He'll never let his friends be at ease, and he'll never be at ease himself. I've always gone to his little parlour since that night, because his father returned the day after. About three times, I think, we've been merry and hopeful, as we were the first evening. The rest of my visits were dreary and troubled, now with his selfishness and spite, now with his sufferings. But I've learnt to endure the former with nearly as little resentment as the latter. Mr Heathcliff purposely avoids me. I've hardly seen him at all. Last Sunday, indeed, coming earlier than usual, I heard him abusing poor Linton cruelly for his conduct of the night before. I can't tell you how he knew of it, unless he listened. Linton had certainly behaved provokingly. However, it was the business of nobody but me, and I interrupted Mr Heathcliff's lecture by entering and telling him so. He burst into a laugh and went away, saying he was glad I took that view of the matter. Since then, I've told Linton he must whisper his bitter things to me. Now, Ellen, you have heard it all. I can't be prevented from going to Wuthering Heights, except by inflicting misery on two people. Whereas, if you'll not only tell Papa, going to the need disturb the tranquillity of none. You'll not tell, will you? It will be heartless if you do. I'll make up my mind on that point by tomorrow, Miss Catherine, I replied. It requires some study. And so I'll leave you to your rest and go think it over. I thought it over aloud in my master's presence, walking straight from her room to his and relating the whole story with the exception of her conversations with her cousin and any mention of Hareton. Mr Linton was alarmed and distressed more than he would acknowledge to me. In the morning, Catherine learnt my betrayal of her confidence, and she learnt also that her secret visits were to end. In vain she wept and writhed against the interdict, and implored her father to have pity on Linton. All she got to comfort her was a promise he would write and give him leave to come to the Grange when he pleased, but explaining he must no longer expect to see Catherine at Wuthering Heights. Perhaps, had he been aware of his nephew's disposition and state of health, he would have seen fit to withhold even that slight consolation. Chapter 25 These things happened last winter, sir said Mrs Dean, hardly more than a year ago. Last winter I did not think at another twelve months' end I should be amusing a stranger to the family with relating them. Yet, who knows how long you'll be a stranger? You're too young to rest always contented living by yourself, and I some way fancy no one could see Catherine Linton and not love her. You smile, but why do you look so lively and interested when I talk about her? And why have you asked me to hang her picture over the fireplace? And why... Stop, my good friend, I cried. It may be very possible that I should love her. But would she love me? 
I doubt it too much to venture my tranquillity by running into temptation. And then my home is not here. I'm of the busy world, and to its arms I must return. Go on, was Catherine obedient to her father's commands? She was, continued the housekeeper. Her affection for him was still the chief sentiment in her heart, and he spoke without anger. He spoke in the deep tenderness of one about to leave his treasure amid perils and foes, where his remembered words would be the only aid that he could bequeath to guide her. He said to me a few days afterwards, I wish my nephew would write, Ellen, or call. Tell me sincerely what you think of him. Is he changed for the better, or is there prospect of his improvement as he grows a man? He is very delicate, sir, I replied, and scarcely likely to reach manhood. But this I can say, he does not resemble his father. And if Miss Catherine had the misfortune to marry him, he would not be beyond her control, unless she were extremely and foolishly indulgent. However, Master, you'll have plenty of time to get acquainted with him and see whether he would suit her. It wants four years and more to his being of age. Edgar sighed and walking to the window looked out towards Gimmerton Kirk. It was a misty afternoon, but the February sun shone dimly and we could just distinguish two fir trees in the yard and the spattered gravestones. I've prayed often, he half soliloquised, for the approach of what is coming, and now I begin to shrink and fear it. I thought the memory of the hour I came down that glen a bridegroom would be less sweet than the anticipation that I was soon in a few months or possibly weeks to be carried up and laid in its lonely hollow. Ellen, I've been very happy with my little Cathy. Through winter nights and summer days she was a living hope at my side. But I've been as happy musing by myself among those stones, under that old church, lying through the long June evenings on the green mound of her mother's grave and wishing, yearning, for the time when I might lie beneath it. What can I do for Cathy? How must I quit her? I'd not care one moment for Linton being Heathcliff's son, nor for his him taking her from me, if he could console her for my loss. I'd not care that Heathcliff gained his ends and triumphed in robbing me of my last blessing. But should Linton be unworthy, only a feeble tool to his father, I cannot abandon her to him. And hard though it be to crush her buoyant spirit, I must preserve, persevere in making her sad while I live and leaving her solitary when I die. Darling, I'd rather resign her to God and lay her in the earth before me. Resign her to God as it is, sir, I answered. And if we should lose you, which may he forbid, under his provenance, I'll stand her friend and counsellor to the last. Miss Catherine is a good girl. I don't fear that she will go willfully wrong, and people who do their duty are always finally rewarded. Spring advanced, yet my master gathered no real strength, though he resumed his walks in the grounds with his daughter. To her inexperienced notions, this itself was a sign of convalescence and then his cheek was often flushed and his eyes were bright. She felt sure of his recovering. On her 17th birthday, he did not visit the churchyard. It was raining and I observed, You'll surely not go out tonight, sir. He answered, No, I'll defer it this year a little longer. 
He wrote again to Linton, expressing his great desire to see him, and had the invalid been presentable, I've no doubt his father would have permitted him to come. As it was, being instructed, he returned an answer, intimating that Mr Heathcliff objected to his calling at the Grange. But his uncle's kind remembrance delighted him, and he hoped to meet him sometimes in his rambles, and personally petitioned that his cousin and he might not remain long so utterly divided. That part of the letter was simple, and probably his own. Heathcliff knew he could plead eloquently for Catherine's company then. I do not ask, he said, that she may visit me here, but am I never to see her, because my father forbids me to go to her home and you forbid her to come to mine? Do now and then ride with her towards the heights and let us exchange a few words in your presence. We have done nothing to deserve this separation, and you are not angry with me. You have no reason to dislike me, you allow yourself. Dear uncle, send me a kind note tomorrow and leave to join you anywhere you please except at Thrushcross Grange. I believe an interview would convince you that my father's character is not mine. He affirms I am more your nephew than his son, and though I have faults which render me unworthy of Catherine, she has excused them, and for her sake you should also. You inquire after my health. It is better. But while I remain cut off from all hope and doomed to solitude or the society of those who never did and never will like me, how can I be cheerful and well? Edgar, though he felt for the boy, could not consent to grant his request because he could not accompany Catherine. He said in the summer, perhaps, they might meet. Meantime, he wished to continue writing at intervals and engaged to give him what advice and comfort he was able by letter, being well aware of his hard position in his family. Linton complied, and had he been unrestrained, would probably have spoilt all by filling his epistles with complaints and lamentations. But his father kept a sharp watch over him, and, of course, insisted on every line that my master sent being shown. So instead of penning his peculiar personal sufferings and distresses, the themes constantly uppermost in his thoughts, he harped on the cruel obligation of being held asunder from his friend and love, and gently intimated that Mr Linton must allow an interview soon, or he should fear he was purposely deceiving him with empty promises. Cathy was a powerful ally at home, and between them they at length persuaded my master to acquiesce in their having a ride or a walk together about once a week under my guardianship, and on the moors nearest from the Grange, for June found him still declining. Though he had set aside yearly a portion of his income for my young lady's fortune, he had a natural desire that she might retain, or at least returning a short time, to the house of her ancestors, and he considered her only prospect of doing that was by a union with his heir. He had no idea that the latter was failing almost as fast as himself, nor had anyone, I believe. No doctor visited the heights, and no one saw Master Heathcliff to make report of his condition among us. I, for my part, began to fancy my forebodings were false and that he must be actually rallying when he mentioned riding and walking on the moors, and seemed so earnest in pursuing his object. I could not picture a father treating a dying child as tyrannically and wickedly as I afterwards learnt Heathcliff had treated him, to compel this apparent eagerness. His efforts redoubling the more imminently his avaricious and unfeeling plans were threatened with defeat by death. 